yet. My name is Cody Snyder. I serve as one of the pastors here for just a few more weeks. Um, as was mentioned in the prayer, um, Hamilton Baptist Church, um, along with some other local churches, is sending out a church plant, a new church, just up the road at Lo in Lovettsville, Lovettsville Baptist Church. So you all are welcome to join us. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, just in a few weeks, on August 22nd, actually, you'll be uh, having a sending service for us, and then that evening we will be covenanting together as a church and partaking of the Lord's Supper that evening. And so I ask that you would continue to pray for, for me and my family and for, for many of you who are, are going with us. There's about 30 to 40, many of whom are from this church, many from other local churches. It's a beautiful picture of, of brothers and sisters coming together to see a new gospel church um, planted and preached and proclaimed. Of course, our senior pastor, Stephen Karn, and his family, he's somewhere out west, I believe, right now, and still on his sabbatical, enjoying his time. Continue to pray for, for them as a family. And uh, this morning, I'm excited to consider um, God's word with us this morning. Question to begin with, what group of people, or perhaps it's a movement, do you feel the closest to? If I said to identify yourself, what would be in your top five? Christian, that's a good answer. That's the right answer. Yeah. For some of us, it would be family. And these are not necessarily bad answers, right? These are good things. For some of us, it's family. I mean, after all, we have a last name. It, it kind of represents who we are. It traces our family history. It reveals where we came from. It tells something about us. For others, it's, it's our friends. There's such a tight-knit community of friends that we have that we associate with them. We belong with them. For some of us, maybe it's a political party. Maybe that would be in your list of top 10. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm an independent. I'm whatever else there is out there. For some of us, it's sports. You know what this is like. You see that logo of your favorite team, and there's an instant connection that you feel with them. Perhaps a Penn State logo or a Pittsburgh Steelers emblem, and I feel as though you're family. Or if you've ever been at an away team or at a game, and you're, you're cheering on the away team, and there's fans there in this massive stadium filled with many other fans who are not on your team, you kind of feel this, this linkage, this bondage with them. Because you're cheering for the same team, kind of the same mission. You see that logo and you're united. Well, as followers of Jesus, we are bound together. It's just, it's just a fact. That's what scripture says. If you belong to Jesus, you automatically belong to his people. We have fellowship with God. You have fellowship with Christians. This is our family. And Jesus has given us a logo, if you will, or a meal, which vividly marks us off as his people. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. Of course, over the past few weeks, we've ventured from our typical manner of preaching here at Hamilton Baptist Church, which is called expository preaching, where we're preaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse of the Bible. And, and we've ventured away from that, not because we're going a different direction. That will be happening again soon, I promise you but because we think it was helpful to take a, a few weeks, six weeks, as Pastor Josh took the first week and I'm, uh, three and I'm taking the last three, to think about the church. What is the church? Church basics, if you will. 
And this is a question that the reformers asked in, in, the, in the 1500s when Martin Luther and John Calvin and all of these guys were trying to reform the church from the Roman Catholic Church. They were asking these questions as well. What is a church? What is a true church? And if you asked them, it would pretty much boil down to this. A church is where the gospel is properly preached or proclaimed and the sacraments or the ordinances are properly administered. So these were a big deal for the reformers who were trying to figure out what is going wrong in Rome with the church and how do we correct it? And so as we continue on in our church basics, last week, of course, we discussed the topic of baptism. What does scripture say about baptism and what do we practice here as a church in regards to baptism? Jesus gave this ordinance or sacrament to his church, but that wasn't the only one. He's also given this church the Lord's Supper. And my prayer for us this week is similar if you were here with us last week. One is that you would have an un, a better understanding of these sacraments in their proper place and that you would cherish them more than you did before. Again, as, as I prayed last week for us in baptism, that you would see the both vertical and horizontal dimension of the Lord's Supper. It's not merely fellowship or communion with God, but also with one another as a church and our unity that we have with one another. And if you're not a Christian here this morning or you're listening to this, I pray, as I did last week, that you would see that this is a visible emblem of the gospel. It points us to Jesus. And so that's my prayer for you today. If you don't know Jesus, that you would see Jesus today, that you would understand why it's good news, and that you would come to him in faith. Again, as I said last week, I think J.I. Packer helps us understand when he says, as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, so the sacraments make it visible, and God stirs up faith by both means. So let's consider this morning the Lord's Supper, and perhaps we could add to Packer's definition, not only get to hear the gospel and see the gospel, but in a sense, taste the gospel. So as we think about the Lord's Supper together, we want to ask, what is the origin of this supper or this ritual? Again, these rituals probably seem really odd if you did not grow up to be a Christian, grow up in a Christian home. Why do we dunk people in water? Why do we eat bread and take the cup? It seems odd. Where did that come from? Then we want to ask, what happens at the supper, if anything? And then third, we want to ask, who should participate and how? So first, we want to ask, what is the origin or the beginning of the Lord's Supper. Well, just a few moments ago, we read, Dave read for us a passage which described the institution of the Passover. Of course, that was the annual event when the people of Israel would gather together and remember and celebrate their salvation, their deliverance from Egypt, that miraculous moment when God delivered them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. And ever since God delivered his people, he said, you need to remember this. You need to eat this flat, unleavened bread, which would vividly remind them as they tasted it of the night their ancestors had to flee Egypt in haste without leaven. And it's in this season of Passover, over 1,500 years later, that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all describe the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. And let's listen in, in Luke chapter 22. 
Luke chapter 22 is where we will begin our time today. Luke chapter 22. Again, it's the season of Passover. And Jesus sends his disciples to find this upper room. And here we jump in on what is happening. Verse 14, Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. So when you think of the Lord's Supper, at least my mind always goes to that famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci, The, the Last Supper. And they're sitting at an actual table. I think it's a beautiful picture, but it's probably actually not that accurate. Because the Bible says, and as was common in the the East at that time, they would recline at the table. They would lay on their sides. So we have this scene of Jesus. He's reclining at the table with his apostles or his disciples with him. Verse 15, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This scene is similar in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John gives us some teaching of Jesus from the Last Supper, but he doesn't go into all the details as the other three Gospels do. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's similar. Jesus blesses or gives thanks for the bread and cup. He gives it to his disciples. And he explains that this bread is my body. And the cup is the blood, and it's associated with a covenant. Typically, the Jews, when they're sitting at Passover feast or enjoying this meal, would have said something like, this is the bread of affliction. It reminds us of when our ancestors had to flee Egypt. But Jesus didn't say that. It's it's an odd twist, something different. For 1,500 years, they've been practicing it this way, and Jesus says something that's very different. He gives them bread, and he says, this is my body. The disciples would have been stunned, perhaps confused. Maybe they're thinking back to John chapter 6, where Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot follow me. But overall, they're probably confused. What's going on? This is not the Passover meal. It is, but there's something different going on. And it's as they were celebrating what God had done before, Jesus was preparing them what God would soon do through another lamb's sacrifice. A new exodus was coming. A greater Passover lamb had arrived. For in the past, God destroyed Pharaoh's firstborn to rescue his people. Now, God was going to sacrifice his own son to rescue his people. As the Apostle Paul would write, Christ is the Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb. So whatever's going on in this supper, it's portraying and proclaiming the gospel. It's helping us understand what Christ did for us. It's proclaiming the gospel. And here we're reminded, and we need to take a moment to rehearse the gospel. 
The truth is what? You and I have all rebelled against God, who is holy and just. And when you break a law or break a standard, there is a punishment to be paid. Not because God is evil or unkind, but because he is so good. But we've broken his standard of righteousness. And we need atonement. We need sacrifice. We need somebody to step in and pay that price that we owe to this holy God. Because we cannot do it. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. But here's Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. For the forgiveness of sins. This new covenant, the next chapter of God's plan is being unfolded right here. Isaiah 53, this suffering servant would come and he would suffer, not for himself, but on behalf of his people. All these images are coming to mind. And friend, if you're here this morning or you're listening to this, and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never pledged your allegiance to him, you're still in rebellion to God, and you will have to stand before the holy God of the universe one day. And I promise you, apart from Christ, you will face God's judgment. And so may this even be a reminder for you this morning to repent of your sins and come to Jesus. But ultimately, we learn from this meal, this started with Jesus. It's, it's the question we ask in point one. What's the origin? What's the beginning of the Lord's Supper or communion? It's Jesus. Jesus instituted it here on the night of his betrayal, the night before he was crucified. Jesus said to do this. It's just that simple. It's an ordinance. It's ordained by Jesus. And then we see the early church obeying Jesus. They, they did a pretty good job. If you were to flip over to Acts chapter 2, after responding in repentance to the message of gospel and being baptized and added to the church, here is what was going on in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. The early church was breaking the bread just as Jesus had told them to do. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, we see that the local church is gathering together to break bread and drink the cup. We'll look at those passages here in a moment. But here's the point. From the earliest days, the church did what Jesus told them to do. They broke the bread and drank the cup in remembrance of Jesus' death for his people. After all, the apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 11 that he received, he received from the Lord what he delivered to them. This wasn't even the, apostles, the apostle Paul's idea. It was the Lord's. The Lord's Supper is from Jesus himself. That's where it came from. Now, throughout history, this sacrament or ordinance that was given to the church has historically been known by several other names. And I think it's helpful just to be aware of why that is. Sometimes this is called, number one, breaking of bread from the descriptions that we see in the book of Acts. Sometimes this is called the Eucharist. And this is because Jesus, on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, it says he gave thanks. It's the word Eucharistia at the Last Supper. So we call this a Thanksgiving meal, the Eucharist. Probably more familiar to us is the Lord's Supper, because Jesus' last supper was with his disciples. 
or the word communion. Because Paul affirms that partaking of the bread and drinking the cup is communion or fellowship with Christ, as we'll think about in a moment. So the Lord's Supper was given by Jesus and obediently followed by the early church and really throughout history. Now, that doesn't mean there's always been agreement and unity on what the Lord's Supper is or how that is to be taken place. It's caused quite the confusion and division. Even among the reformers who were trying to pull away from the church of Rome to reform the church, to recover the gospel, to recover what a true church was, even two of the main leaders, Luther and Zwingli, they could not agree on this issue. They actually had a meeting, and they agreed on 14 consecutive points. And then they got to point number 15, which was the nature of the Lord's Supper and what was going on in the Lord's Supper. And they could not agree. And you would think, well, 14 out of 15, that's passing. Not not for Luther and Zwingli. They broke fellowship over this issue. So perhaps we would look at that and say, maybe you guys shouldn't have broken fellowship over this issue. But maybe we've gone so far the other way where we don't even think about this or care about this that much. And so we want to think about, well, what is going on at the Lord's Supper, if anything? Why do we do this? Of course, Jesus told us to do this, but what does it do for us? How does it benefit us as Christians or as the church? So we want to ask, secondly, what is going on at the Lord's Supper? We ask what the origin is of the Lord's Supper. Then we want to ask what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm going to throw out some big words that you've probably heard before, and not because I like big words, I prefer small words, but this is just how um, Christian traditions have sometimes understood or tried to explain what's going on at the Lord's Supper, and you've probably heard these before. The first is this term called transubstantiation, transubstantiation. This is the belief that the bread is actually changed into the body of Christ. And the cup or the wine is actually changed into the blood of Christ. When the priest prays over these elements, they're actually and physically transformed. Although they they still look like bread and they still look like wine, it's the physical blood and body of Christ. And God infuses grace into these elements so that when you partake of them, you receive benefits. It's typically the Roman Catholic view, or it is the Roman Catholic view. There's another word out there called consubstantiation. And if you don't understand what these fully mean, that's okay. I don't either. (laughs) Consubstantiation is the idea that Christ is truly present in, with, and under, quoting Luther, the substance of the bread and wine. That's the Lutheran view. Or there's the memorial view. This is a memorial. We remember what Christ did. Zwingli the guy who was arguing with Luther, proposed this view. Or there's another view, commonly known as spiritual presence. Kind of taught by John Calvin, he said, these are symbols, but these are not empty symbols. For Christ is spiritually present with his church, and the church is nourished by him. Now, my goal is not to defend one of these brothers or say I'm of Calvin or I'm of Zwingli. The Apostle Paul told us not to do that. But I just want to throw that out there to say that the church has tried to understand what's going on at the Lord's Supper, and they've not always agreed on this. And so let's look at Scripture and consider what, if anything, what's going on at the Lord's Supper? What good is it for us to partake of the Lord's Supper? 
if we were to stop singing in church, how long would it take for you to notice? Probably relatively fast. If we were to stop partaking of the Lord's Supper, would that be as important as music to you? Or what about last year when we as a church were not able to gather together and were not able to partake of the Lord's Supper? Did you miss it at all? Did you long to be back together so that you could partake of it? Well, we learn from others, don't we? Perhaps one of the most common ways we learn from other people is from their mistakes or errors. And this is true for the church at Corinth. They're a prime example. The Lord's Supper is not Paul's main focus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we're going to spend a few moments, yet it does inform our understanding of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you'll be helped to turn there if you have your Bible, Paul writes a detailed argument about the relationship between Israel, idol worship, and the Lord's Supper. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I don't want you to be unaware, he's writing to the local church, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So in these first five verses, Paul is saying that Israel's physical wilderness meals, the meals that they received from God, real, actual food, contained a spiritual reality. He's saying they drank from the rock. He's saying it was Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying they ate, but they were actually being nourished by Christ when they partook of this. That's what he says in verse 4. And he goes on. Now, these things in verse 6 took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So while all of this was happening, of course, you know the story of Israel in the wilderness while some of them would offer sacrifices to God and participate in the temple, some of them were idolaters. You see this in verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Don't fall into temptation as many of them did. Paul says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you to be tempted beyond your ability. He'll provide a way to escape. And so he gives us as an example for us, the church. He says, look at Israel. Look what happened to them. Don't worship idols. And then he kind of concludes this all in verses 14 through 22. And he compares the Lord's Supper with Israel's sacrifices and pagan sacrifices. It's really fascinating. Verse 14, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants 
in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So verse 18, just as Israel participates, it's also the same word fellowship or the word commune. It's the Greek word koinonia. Just as Israel participates in the altar, verse 18, and just as pagans participate or fellowship or commune with demons in verse 20, he says Christians back in verse 16 participate, fellowship, all the same word, with Christ. There's something real happening here. And not just with Christ, look at verse 17, but all those who partake of the bread. Right? When Israel was doing these altars worship, there was a real participation, a real fellowship, a real communion happening. And to worship an idol, Paul is saying, hey, that's not merely materialism. To worship somebody else than the one true and living God is actually to participate or to fellowship, to commune with demons. But on the contrast, when we participate, that's the word he uses. At the Lord's table, this cup and the bread, we participate with Christ. We have communion with Christ. That's why we call it communion. There's fellowship. Notice he doesn't say anything about the elements turning into something that they're not or that something's above them or beyond them. He's just saying at this meal, there's a fellowship happening with Christ and his people. So Paul is using the, la the Lord's Supper. He's using it as an argument to help us as Christians flee from idolatry. But he also helps us see that when we engage or partake of the Lord's Supper... We have communion with Christ. And he, he warns us, though, look, you can't have fellowship or communion with Christ and demons. That's unbelievable. You can't drink that cup and this cup at the same time. You can't sit at two tables at the same time. It reminds us of what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. Either you will love, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner summarizes, he says, Israel's destruction is a type of God's judgment and functions as a warning to the church. One cannot partake of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice by eating at his table and then proceed to eat at the table of idols and share in the benefits of demonic powers. God will not tolerate such idolatry. That's how the Apostle Paul ends. Are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? So just some observations from this passage. First, the Lord's Supper reveals our allegiance to Christ and our rejection of idols. At the very least, this passage is showing when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's visibly showing that we, are, we belong to Christ. We're participating with him. We're communing with Christ not idols. At the same time, the Lord's Supper is fellowship with Christ and his people, vertical and horizontal. 
We are nourished by Christ at his table and receive the benefits by faith. We not only get to see the gospel and hear the gospel, we get to taste it. Eating the bread and drinking the cup is participating, that's what Paul says in verse 16, in the body and blood of Christ. This means that in eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are by faith claiming the benefits, the benefits of the death in Christ and identifying ourselves to him and his body, the church. Anne Dutton, she was a lady who was born in the late 1700s. She did most of her writing in the 1800s, in the 1700s, 1800s. I think it's 1800s. You can look it up later. 1700s, yeah. Anyways, she was a, she was a, Bap, a Baptist pastor's wife. Um, her story is quite remarkable, but she also did a lot of writing in her days as well, Anne Dutton, and she wrote a lot of hymns. She corresponded with Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, even trying to correct their views sometimes. Um, but she wrote a lot, and she wrote this pamphlet on the Lord's Supper, and she wrote this. In the Lord's Supper, the king is pleased to sit with us at his table. Isn't that beautiful? Benjamin Bedomi, or Benjamin Bedome, depending how you, you want to talk about it. He was also an 18th century Baptist pastor and, in hymn, and a hymn composer. And here's one hymn that he wrote. He said, Ye hungry, starving poor, join in the sweet repaste. View Jesus in these symbols given and his salvation taste. Modern day Baptist pastor, theologian Brandon Smith says, he says, I'm not Catholic nor the son of one, so I don't believe the bread and wine actually become the literal flesh and the blood of Jesus. He says, I do, however, think Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 10, that there is a very real sacredness to the bread and wine or juice, and that partaking of them has tangible spiritual effects and consequences. Right? He's saying they don't turn into something, but there's something happening here. There's a real fellowship happening with Christ and his people. It's 1 Corinthians 10. Let's look briefly at the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, because Paul shifts for a moment from the Lord's Supper and he commends the church in chapter 11 for their instructions concerning headship. However, that quickly shifts in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, he says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. How would you like to be told that by the Apostle Paul? Because, he tells them, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. It's like a weird twist on marriage vows, isn't it? For in the first place, verse 18, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's his concern. There are divisions among you as Christ's church. You're divided. And he says, I believe it, verse 19. But then he goes on, verse 20, when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For an eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. How would you like to be at this church? And he says what we would all say in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Apparently there were wealthier members of the church and they were showing off their rich foods, maybe their meats. Are you humiliating the church and those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul's addressing a problem. We get to learn from their problem, thankfully. 
seems that they are eating their own supper rather than the Lord's supper. So he says, you're eating supper, but it's not the Lord's supper. And Paul says that you do that in your houses, but not the church. Now, this is not um, a Bible verse against Baptist potlucks, okay? I'm not saying we can't gather together for meals. It's just Baptist potlucks are not the Lord's Supper, okay? So here's what you are to do, verse 23. And he goes on to explain this passage that we're probably all very familiar, familiar with. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27 Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world there's a lot we could observe from this passage but just like we did in first corinthians 10 just just note a few observations after reading first corinthians 11 first paul is writing to the gathered church right? of course there are individual christians here but it's not as if christians are out in their own homes celebrating this he's writing to the gathered church he again affirms that the lord's supper was instituted by christ this is what I received, Paul said. And he gives the same details that we read about Jesus giving in the Gospels. We learn here that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Jesus. It's a gospel proclamation. And it's an anticipation. So it's as if the Lord's Supper is looking back on the past as we partake of it in the present. And we do this until he comes again. So the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's as if the past and the the future are all kind of intertwined together. But he also tells us the Lord's Supper is not for everyone, doesn't he? He says there's an unworthy manner in which to partake of this supper. There's a wrong way to partake of this supper. And this is a warning. So what is taking of the supper in an unworthy manner? Well, first, I think we can see from this passage that you need to be a Christian to partake of the supper. You need to be a follower of Jesus. Faith is vitally important to receive the true benefits of Christ. If you come and partake of the bread and the cup, but you have not been united to Jesus by faith, it means nothing to you. You've had a snack. But actually not. Paul says you're actually drinking judgment on yourself. Because when you partake of the bread and the cup, you're fellowshipping with Christ. And if you've not been united to him by faith, that is not true of you. You must be a Christian. And again, we don't believe, as the Roman Catholic tradition teaches, that these sacraments or ordinances have something in and of themselves that even apart from faith or the preaching of the word, they still benefit you. They don't benefit you apart from the preaching of the word and by faith. 
You must be a Christian. But furthermore, in this context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what the Christians were to be examining themselves for was unity. Remember, this is why Paul is writing this. I hear there's divisions among you. You're not united as you ought to be in Jesus. They were to be a discerning body. When he says to discern the body, for verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, he's not talking about looking at your own body and seeing if, am I okay enough? To, have I had enough, too many carbs to partake of this supper? That's not what he's saying, right? He's talking about the body, the body of Christ, believers around you. You need to discern that. You need to be aware of that. He says, if you have divisions in the church and you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, that's an unworthy manner. To eat and drink at the Lord's Supper without considering the other brothers and sisters who are partaking of this with you is to do so in an unworthy manner. The Lord's Supper then is not every head bowed and every eye closed with no one looking around. You're meant to look around at the Lord's Supper. You're meant to consider the other brothers and sisters in this room who are partaking of the meal with you. To not do so is to do so in an unworthy manner. Right? It's not discerning the body. And to, if you do that, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. That's what he says. So what's going on at the Lord's Supper? from 1 Corinthians 11. Well, again, the Lord's Supper visibly proclaims the gospel. It functions as a sign, not to draw attention to itself, but pointing us to something else, mainly Jesus. That's why we partake of the Lord's Supper. It points us to Jesus. The forgiveness of sins, the new covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant. How? We take of the body and blood of Christ, the bread and the cup, the past, the present, the future, all collide together. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, never mind that bread and wine unless you can use them as folks use their spectacles. Why do they use them? To look at? No, to look through them. So use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The spectacles visibly proclaim and display the gospel. Secondly, the Lord's Supper serves as a means of grace to nourish our faith and stir love for Christ and his people. At the table, we fellowship. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. We commune with Christ and his people. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 10. The bread is one, and we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And just one more quote from Spurgeon as he was going on to say, he says, we believe that Jesus Christ spiritually comes to us and refreshes us. And in that sense, we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Our allegiance to Jesus is renewed every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are united together. We're reminded of our unity together as the family of Jesus when we partake of the blood and bread, the, the bread and the cup, we're reminded that we're one in Jesus' family. It creates unity. It reminds us of unity. 
I quoted the Didache last week. It was an early Christian document. It's not scripture, so you shouldn't look at this and say, well, that says that, so we should do it. But it is informative to see what the early Christians were doing in the first century. And it gave instructions. It says, on the Lord's day, gather together and break bread and give thanks, having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who has a quarrel with a companion join you until they have been reconciled so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. So early Christians, just a document that we have trying to help Christians understand this, were saying, look, when you come to the Lord's table, you need to examine yourself. But if, if you have conflict or division with another brother or sister, you need to reconcile that before you come to the Lord's table. In the act of taking the Lord's Supper, we are nurturing our unity. This is our Lord. When you partake of this in just a few moments, you're declaring, I belong to Jesus and I belong to these people. This is our Lord. These are my people. Before we jump to our final and brief point here, just a brief reflection on baptism. Because we talked about baptism last week. And we talked about the Lord's Supper this week. How do they relate to each other? I've been very helped by an author named Bobby Jameson. And so a lot of these I get from him, but let me just quote a few things. It says, baptism brings one into the many. The Lord's Supper binds the many into one. Baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is the renewal oath sign of the new covenant. Baptism is like the door. The Lord's Supper is like the table. The church identifies. So we as a church, when we baptize somebody, we're saying that they have a true confession of the gospel. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we reaffirm our confession together. So how or who and how should we participate finally of this supper, this meal that Jesus has given to his people? Well, first, point number three, who and how should we participate? First, this is a meal for the gathered church. This is a meal for the gathered church. We commune with Christ and his people it displays our deep unity to one another. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the church coming together or being gathered together five times for the Lord's Supper. It's as if he wants to get a point across. You do this when you gather together. You do this when you come together to worship. You eat your own supper at home, but you come together for the Lord's Supper. This is why we as Hamilton Baptist Church don't, we, we ask community groups is not a place to partake of the Lord's Supper. That's for the gathered church together. This is why when we were live streaming church, we decided to the best that we can understand scripture, not to do our own Lord's Supper in our homes because we're not a gathered church. We're not together. This is why personal family Lord's Supper, we, we as elders would say that's not the best practice because you're not part of the gathered church. This is for the gathered church. Of course, there are exceptions for nursing homes or those who are homebound who are part of this church. But those are exceptions. This meal is for the gathered church. He says that over and over again in 1 Corinthians 11. When you gather together, when you come together, it's for the gathered church. Now, what individuals should not participate? We, we touched on this briefly, but who should not participate in the Lord's Supper? Well, first, as we mentioned, non-Christians. Because this taking of this meal would not be true of you. Secondly, unrepentant, or those who are under church discipline, as talked about a few weeks ago with Pastor Josh. Those who refuse to acknowledge their sin and refuse reconciliation with God and others, 
should not partake of the Lord's Supper. To receive Christ at the table is to receive all of those around us, brothers and sisters. So regardless of wealth, regardless of race, regardless of our political views, all of us stand on equal footing at the cross. In Christ, we've been made new and we're united into one body. So what about you? Who do you need to reconcile with? Perhaps even in this church. Perhaps even a member sitting across from you before you partake of the Lord's Supper. If you partake of this meal without discerning the body, Paul says you drink judgment on yourself. So don't bring judgment on yourself. Finally, what individual should participate? Well, Paul says it's Christians who've examined themselves. Christians should participate in this meal. You confess your sin and consider Christ, you need him. But don't for a moment think that because you've had a bad week that you can't partake of this meal. I had this idea when I was, was, a, was a teenager, after I was baptized and I started taking the Lord's Supper, I would have a bad week where I, I sinned, which obviously would happen all the time. But I thought that would exclude me from partaking of the Lord's Supper because I heard these warnings and don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And I thought, I'm a sinner. But friends, Jesus eats with sinners. This is a meal, a meal reminding us of the gospel. In previous centuries, some Christians were so fearful about taking the supper in an unworthy manner that few would actually come up to receive the elements or let them pass by. Friends, Jesus eats with sinners. And as we fellowship with him, he transforms us. So it's not, I had a good week this week. I can partake of the Lord's Supper. I, or I had a bad month. I can't partake of the Lord's Supper. Friends, you don't create your standing before God. He does that by his grace. And if you've been united to him by faith, he says, come to the table. He says, come. Feast on, come who, all who are thirsty, Isaiah 55. Come to the waters. You without money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of foods. Feast on Christ by faith. That's who's to take the Lord's Supper. Now, if you were to ask me personally, this is not the view of a church or we don't fence the table in this way. It seems best that you should probably be baptized. Again, if baptism is symboling this entry into the church or fellowship with God's people, that should be your first step of obedience to Jesus before you partake. And then those who examine themselves. And finally, the Lord's Supper is serious yet celebratory. Right? It's sober reminding what Jesus has done for us. He died for us. He went to the cross for us. But friends, it's a celebration at the same time because we know he didn't stay in the grave. He got up from the dead and he said, I'll drink this. I'm not going to drink it until I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So we look at the past and we remind it of Jesus's death. And perhaps tears are appropriate because he did that for us. But at the same time, he was resurrected and he's coming back again. Sober, yet celebratory. And what an opportunity to explain this meal to your children. I remember this is one of the first questions that my daughter asked me about church. What is that? As we read from the Passover, right? That was one of the things. When your children ask, right, they're going to ask. They will. They ask questions. That's what they do. And when they ask about the meal, be ready to explain it to them. 
And what an opportunity, what an opportunity to explain the gospel. What an opportunity to say, this is what Jesus has done for us. Explain it to your children. So as we conclude these past two weeks on the sacraments or ordinances, just remember this. The gospel isn't merely the story of the past. It's our story. And these gospel emblems, when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, proclaim this is who God was, and this is who God is, and this is who God will be. Both of these vividly picture Christ's death and resurrection and our participation in his death and resurrection by faith. And don't forget, these are vertical, right? Baptism, I'm united to Jesus. You're also united to his people. Communion, I commune, I fellowship with Christ. I also have fellowship with his people. Vertical and horizontal. What a gift Jesus has given to us. A meal where we get to fellowship, participate, commune with Christ and one another as his people. The supper is more than a passing memory of what Jesus once did. It's a repetitive sign of the work that he continues to do until the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now I, I have the wonderful privilege to lead us, and you have the wonderful privilege to partake of this meal. So I ask those who are serving the Lord's Supper, you can go ahead and come forward at this time. And I just remind you what we just talked about. This is a meal for Christians. So if you're here this morning and you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ, this meal is for you. You believe the same gospel that you heard preached here? You're invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. But as we just talked about, this meal is not for everyone. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you would not partake of this meal. But here's the beauty. The invitation, the invitation is, come, is wide open. Next time we partake of this meal, you could be taking it with us if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. So if you believe the same gospel that you heard preached, we ask that you would participate with us. And if you don't yet believe the gospel, now's your moment while we're passing out these elements, while you see them go by, while you see the bread and the cup, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. I'm going to come down here so that I can celebrate and partake of this with you all.